Continuing completed classics. Fulfilling failed franchises. Reinvigorating reviled rehashes. It's the follow-up showdown. Do it over October. <laughs> Hiya uppers and heya downers, welcome to the follow-up showdown to Nerds in Quarantine, where we continue to give worthy second chapters to stories that don't have them. I am your host, Paul Getz. With me are my co-hosts, Travis McMaster and Lauren Picorni. How are you guys? Hi, Hello. Sorry. Hello. Uh, Travis is maybe having a stroke. Uh, Lauren seems fine. If this is the first time you're joining us, the way it works is we take a movie with either no sequel or a sequel that uh, doesn't live up to the first one and each try our hand at coming up with a better one. And on our favorite episodes, we do this with a guest. Today, that guest is none other than my cousin and the owner of Great Stone Coffee in Lake of the Ozarks, more specifically Osage Beach, Missouri, on the way to Margaritaville. If you see the giant coffee cup, you can't miss it. His name is Will Runyon Jr. Hey, Will, how's it going? It's great. Going great, Paul. Happy to be oh, here. Good. Yeah, happy to have you. This is actually the first time we've actually spoken since perhaps a family gathering. So thank you for coming to, to a part of my life that uh, is not about family necessarily. No. I've been enjoying it, though. Have been, I've been listening since the beginning. You might be the only one, but it is still very much appreciated. Uh, the movie that we are doing today is 1989's The Fly 2, sequel to the 1986 David Cronenberg body horror sci-fi film The Fly. I believe this was your suggestion, right, Will? Or this is the one that you picked from the list? Yes. Well, um, yeah, it was it was my suggestion. I guess I don't think I ever actually got the list. Um, over the last year or so, um, I've been doing like a Cronenberg marathon, like slow motion marathon. Uh, with my girlfriend because she hasn't seen most of his stuff and but uh yeah we've been going uh chronologically through his movies and and uh the fly happened to be the next one on our list and and i thought well there's a there's a movie that has a terrible sequel well so travis it sounds like you have a differing opinion when it comes to the fly too um yes well one of the reasons i'm so i was so excited to do this episode is when i got the the word from you that Will had chosen um, the fly two, I had just a few weeks earlier ordered. I got the fly two on DVD just because I wanted to watch it, and I'm sure everyone who's listening to this probably knows by now you can't really find it streaming anywhere. So um, I'd ordered the DVD and I was very excited. Uh, I did not have an end to this story prepared at all. Um, let me start at the beginning. <laughs> Well, I said, I said this off mic earlier. I first I saw the fly two before I saw the fly. I thought it was the fly. I saw it like on on USA in the nineties, sometime back when they would do horror um, marathons. And I grew up for many years thinking that I had seen the fly. And when I would describe scenes to it to people, they kind of stared at me blankly, and I assumed they were the fool. And it wasn't until years later when I saw the fly that I said, "But where's the scene where you know?" all the stuff happens that I remember. And that's how I discovered that there was a sequel to The Fly. 
Okay. Well, I have some questions about that um, quote unquote story you just told. But um, uh, first, uh, let's get uh, some people caught up in case they haven't seen either movie with two Travis McMaster minutes. Two Travis McMaster minutes. It's now a highlight. Common common courtesy dictates that we offer the minute to Will. Well, if you'd like to take a crack at the minutes. Man, well, you know what? I brevity is not one of my strong points. So I, I think you, you do such an excellent job. <laughs> I I I think it would hurt the show for me to <laughs> take that from you. Wow. Um, all right, I'll do it. I'll do my all job. Right. Let me know when you're ready. Oh, I'm sure I'm ready now. Okay. And go. Seth Brundle is a, a bright young inventor, and he recruits, flirts with Gina Davis, a journalist, to come back to his lab to check out his invention, which ends up being two teleportation pods, the Brundle pods, that he demonstrates by flirtatiously transporting her stocking through. Um, she wants to write about it. He doesn't want her to write about it. Uh, the plot is pretty straightforward from here. He teleports himself in an act of desperation to prove his, his pods can transport organic matter. A fly gets trapped in the pod with him. The pod fuses his DNA with the fly. And then for the rest of the picture, we basically watch him, Seth Brundle, become Brundlefly as he goes mad and his body turns into that of a fly. Um, and then at the end of the movie, he tries to teleport Gina Davis with him to get her to, to become like one horrible little family unit uh, as she is pregnant with his child. Um, and things go wrong. He gets half teleported into the pod itself and then requests through pantomime that she shoot him in the head with a shotgun, which she does. Mm -hmm. oh, right. Oh. Yes. And then there's a second film. Okay. 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 And then and fly <laughs> right, oh. uh, so we open with not Gina Davis giving birth to a terrible fly creature. And then she dies because it was not Gina Davis. It was some other actress. And uh, we just movies are never very nice to women. Uh, and then the fly child grows up as property of this corporation that is trying to understand his metamorphosis. They're a genetics corporation. They're also trying to unlock the secrets of these pods, the Brundle pods. Uh, part of this fly baby's deal is that he grows very quickly. So in a matter of months, he turns into a child. In a matter of years, he becomes a man, an Eric Stoltz man. Um, and then Eric Stoltz, as a genius, is put to work trying to uncover how these pods work. He begins his own natural metamorphosis into a fly monster. Um, he wreaks his havoc and revenge on the company and the corporation. Um, although in a twist, he manages to unmutate himself by successfully teleporting with the uh, CEO of the company in the pods so that he could just remain Eric Stoltz. And then the, the CEO becomes a horrible monster. Okay, Done. yeah. I mean, I think you went wow. two seconds over, but that was so close. I let it, I let it slide. Getting better. Not bad, not bad. Justified oh, in my decision. <laughs> That's high praise. A couple things that uh, are maybe worth noting that were not noted are in the first one, Gina Davis has an ex-lover mm -hmm. who is her boss, and he is inadvertently the reason that uh, Seth goes through the pods because he's jealous and drunk. Right. Um, which I think is maybe only worth mentioning because it sort of adds to how tragic it is. Well, and that character shows up in the fly too. So that's a great, that's a great. Correct. No. He's the only character to show up from one to two. And he's also in my pitch. So had to, had to mention him. <laughs> also in my pitch too. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he survived, so <laughs> I guess stands to reason. Although he does lose a hand and a foot because of burning fly vomit. Um, and then in uh, two, the only thing that I guess I felt like was left out is he has a girlfriend. And she's uh, nice. Yeah, but I, like I said, movies, they didn't. I don't, uh, yeah, yeah. She's the lead from Spaceballs. That's uh, oh. where you might remember her from. She's, yeah. Princess Vespa, right? Vespa. That's it. That's the one. All right. Well, so then, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's start it off by talking about the first one. Uh, what's uh, everybody's experience? What were your thoughts? What do you think? What do you feel? What do you know? So I had seen it when I was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was probably too young to have. I was probably eight or something, you know, like it wasn't long after it had come out uh, when I originally saw it. And I think that's the only time I ever had seen it until, you know, recently. Uh, so I had some. Well, and actually. um your, what you were describing earlier, uh, Travis, uh, with your memories of The Fly 2, I was having that experience when I was watching The Fly 1 because I, I was like, yeah, I was waiting for moments that I remembered uh, to, you know, that I thought were in the first one uh, that weren't. Uh, yeah, I, I really, um, I was surprised. I enjoyed it much more than I expected to. I, the, I don't know. I felt like it was a much better production. The quality, it, it did, it, some of his stuff, you know, has that low budget kind of feel, right? Like, even well, like what I think, uh, Videodrome, I think was what he did maybe right before the fly. Yes, and it it feels almost feels like it was shot for TV or something like. And this, it felt like a Hollywood movie, you know. And and I felt like the performances, everything was just like better, you know. And of course, the uh, makeup, the monster effects, you know, is that was that's what they won the Oscar for, right? Yeah, correct. Um, Best makeup, yeah. Yeah, and it was amazing. It was yeah, that was pretty cool too. I think it still held up. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I felt it was like a little jarring. I thought way it opened, uh, just with them at the the art opening and and he's talking. I was specifically going to compliment this very thing about the movie. I, it's so rare that you see something mm -hmm. like that, where the first shot after a cool credit sequence is you're given a close-up of the main character. He's already in a conversation with the other main character. You didn't have to see them meet. You didn't have to see them cross the room to each other. The dynamic is already there, and the character's already there in, in such a major way. I wonder if that was always the opening, but I, I, I really couldn't think of anything that work, would work better, especially yeah. given that his first line is, uh, you know, I'm going to change the world. Well, yeah, and I feel like it really just kept moving from there. Like, I didn't, yeah. I don't think there was any point in this movie that dragged, uh, that I recall. It just. I completely agree with you. And that actually, in part, makes me question both from you and Travis what things from The Fly 2 you were waiting for, be <laughs> only because to me, The Fly 2, nothing. I mean, it, it, the setup is interesting, but I would say it feels like nothing really happens until the last. 20 minutes well i'm glad in, you asked in, in which all of the visual stuff that you might remember happens uh yes uh the big big thing for me apart from that like devastating and amazing ending uh was the shot of the fly throwing the security guard at that door that he slams the door shut with the body oh yeah uh, i just remember that was a really effective creepy well done effect you know the year i saw it when i was a child uh, and it held up. Um, I was probably confused about the opening because I know mm. Gina Davis had that nightmare in the first one, but it plays out differently in the opening, obviously. So that probably confused me. Yeah, that's the moment that I so I mean, and we're, we're not concerned about spoiling anything, right? 
Like, no, we we've so, had our minutes. Yes. So. Okay. So so that so the 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 birth nightmare that she has in the first movie, um, you know, she gives birth to the giant maggot and it's you know wiggling around and in the second movie. I guess well, what I remembered, what I was expecting was like this wobbly, like egg thing to come out. Like, and then the guy stomps on it. Is that what happens in the second movie? What happens in the second one is it's like, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a shell essentially that she gives birth to. It's a, it's a, yes. Disgusting slime covered pupa, uh, that the, that a then completely healthy, normal looking baby hatches out of basically a guy okay, kind so- of prods it. Yeah. Lauren, was this your first time seeing these movies? Um, y- yes. <laughs> I want to say that. I- <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it was so gross. Like the first one, it really, really grossed yeah. me out. All the effects and like the nails coming off, oh, yeah. like vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, very disgusting and off-putting. Oh, it only gets grosser as it goes. For sure. But the first one I had seen it in, I think for the first time in college, I have held it in high regard since then. And then upon rewatching it this time, I hold it in even higher regard. I really don't have much uh, bad to say about it. I mean, I got grossed out again and I was, I was cool with that. I thought that was great. But yeah, I mean, it's so tragic and scary and tense and wonderful and performances. Uh, I praise up and down all the live long day. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to say one thing about the, uh, the effects and the grossness, you know, it, there's something that's one thing I love about Cronenberg's stuff is and uh, it actually reminds me of like a uh, Guillermo del Toro like on his uh, on the devil's backbone like commentary mm-hmm. he, there's like a, a part where a guy gets like stabbed in the armpit with a spear and Ugh. there's something like yeah. you feel it you know it's not just yeah. getting shot yeah. in the bicep you know mm-hmm. like all the action heroes do you know Cronenberg yeah. it's like there's there's like a humanity to it like he doesn't shy away from it like and like in a history of violence, he talks in the you know, commentary, he talked about that too. Like, yeah, like he doesn't glorify it. It's all there and it's horrible. Uh, but in this movie, like you are, you have that emotional connection to Seth and yeah. yeah and as he's going through this, it's, it's just, yeah, it's gut wrenching, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty great how effectively they make you not just like, in my opinion, but love him. Um, in those first uh, 20 or so minutes of the movie, because as soon as his transformation starts, it is so fast and he so quickly becomes monstrous. It, like he he very quickly jumps off of the hero's arc and mm-hmm. into just this sort of tragic freight train to hell. Mm-hmm. And that's why it, it makes it so effective when you do see moments of humanity from him again. It's so horrific to start, and he pushes Gina Davis right out, that when she sort of hears from him in a way, he's already, like, doomed. He's already really deep into his process of becoming the fly. But I was, like, relieved. I was, like, nice to feel a—it was nice to feel a moment of relief that she gets to hear from her love again, you know? I actually thought that was— in some ways more chilling because to me, and he even sort of has that little, he has that little speech that says it as much. It felt less like we were meeting Seth or seeing Seth Brundle again. And more like we were meeting Brundle fly. Like we had gone past his, like his first, you know, sort of over the, over the hump kind of jittery transformation process. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like, you could read that as Seth Brundle dying. 
and then the mm. calm sort of like scary looking thriller esque monster uh, is Brundle Fly, and that's why he's being sort of like but Frankenstein mm. being a polite, well spoken creature. Yeah, and and I'll just you know say as well, like I thought I was really amazed by his performance. You know, like everybody oh. loves Jeff Goldblum, right? But I can't think of anything that. I felt like it was like a great acting performance. He just kind of does what he does, right? I yeah, mean, I hear I heard, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I love him. I mean, he does, yeah, he's great. You know, he elevates whatever he's in, I'd say, you know, it seems like. But um, but in this, it was a truly great performance. Like, I mean, just like his, that, that whole transformation, I mean, the physical ticks and the way it kind of, it fed out over the course of the movie, it just yeah. seemed like his progression or his disintegration was just like, was just perfect. Such a distinct and immediately recognizable character. Like, he mm-hmm. is charming and he is handsome, but as soon as you see and meet Seth Brundle, you also understand that he is socially strange, that he's a, a loner, that he's, that he's, uh, that he essentially wears his whole self on his sleeve. Like, I just, I feel like you get that from shot one, moment one. This is a good transition into my actor's notes because there are some interesting ones here. I could not picture it with anybody but Jeff Goldblum, and there were a lot of actors that auditioned for it. But before he got it, it was offered to the following four actors. First, Michael Keaton, who Mm. apparently every movie in the mid-80s wanted, Mm. we're trying to find out. Yeah, Mel Gibson, who turned it down for Lethal Weapon. James Woods. And uh, Richard Dreyfus. Huh. Whoa, really? I actually think yeah. everyone except for James Woods would have filled that role, too. I was kind of hoping Lithgow was going to be on that list. He auditioned. Oh. Yeah. Look at me. <laughs> no. <laughs> also considered were Willem Dafoe and John Travolta. But Willem Dafoe is the only one on that whole list that I, I don't know, that uh, brings Already the... Already has a monster face. Yeah, I guess so, <laughs> because it's, I, I guess that is part of it. And apparently when it comes to Jeff Goldblum's face, the um, makeup effects people, the, the, the character crew, they were a little bit uh, upset at his casting because they thought his face would be too hard to work with. Which is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because he is handsome, but he's an odd, offbeat kind of handsome. Yeah, for sure. He's got the big eyes, and uh, um, and like he's he's even more striking younger. It's insane. Mm. Like I I couldn't stop looking at him. (laughs) So Veronica was offered originally to Linda Hamilton, who David Cronenberg just loved in the Terminator, but she turned it down because the script disturbed her. Yeah, and then uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Laura Dern were both considered, but it ultimately went to Gina Davis when Jeff Goldblum, who was dating her at the time, suggested her. And uh, then, and then she killed the audition. It wasn't just that she killed the audition. Well, but. Uh, one thing I might throw in, since you, speaking of that sort of thing, so I felt like the romance thing was it, it was effective in a way. The tragedy was there, but I did not feel a lot of chemistry between them. What did you guys think about that? I, I agree. I I, I didn't. It, it felt sterile, cold. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I sort Insect of like, like huh. oh, oh boy. Between <laughs> <laughs> the two of them, is he is attractive and charming enough that she followed him back, and then almost mm-hmm. immediately she sees this amazing invention. Obviously, that's what she's going to care about more. 
And then when she starts to fall for him, he immediately turns into a lunatic. So I, I took any lack of chemistry that you guys might have picked on just to read as like, she doesn't know him that well. And then he turns into a monster. I would say that I did feel chemistry, but at the same time, the connection that they share is a connection between a, a character. The, the character she's playing is very used to relationships, sort of very mature about relationships, and he is the opposite. Mm. So I feel like that is what is intriguing her to to some extent, along with everything else. So I could see it reading any any number of different ways. So like the there's like the sex scene that they had mm-hmm. and Jeff Goldblum, he's he's like doing this like weird, like heavy panting thing the whole time. And I was thinking, is this, is he like a virgin? Like, is this like that was it seemed like an odd choice to me. I felt like uh, what, I, what I got from him in terms of that was that he because he's to some extent had enough charm to talk her into coming back and seeing the invention. And because of a line that he says later on when he says, are we having a romance? I think that he is probably used to casual sex or sex that doesn't lead further. That would be my guess about Seth Brundle. Okay. Okay, well, so jumping back a little to some writer and director's notes about the first one. Um, It was originally offered to Tim Burton, who turned it down. And then Robert... Bierman was at the helm of the film, but had to leave uh, because of the tragic death of his daughter. Mm. And this was, I thought, really, really cool. Mel Brooks produced this movie. He actually produced both movies, The Fly and The Fly 2. But he took his name off because he wanted people, he didn't want uh, people to not take it seriously. And he came up with the tagline, be afraid, be very afraid. I can, Uh I can hear it in his voice now. Really funny to me that the tagline for The Fly 2 is be afraid, be very, very afraid. Oh, was that Nailed the tagline? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I take back I, anything negative I ever said about it. <laughs> I have to say, it's not scarier. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like it or not, it is not a scarier film than the first. So incorrect <laughs> in its tag- use of tagline. Yeah. Anything anybody else wants to say about the first one? I would just want to like circle back and revisit Gina Davis for a moment uh, because the Cronenberg effects and Jeff Goldblum get so much attention for the movie as well. They should. But Mm -hmm. Gina does, you know, what she does very well, too. And I think she has a really challenging character tightrope to walk in this movie where she's sort of interested in Seth Brundle, but also doesn't know him. And then he kind of goes crazy, but she's compassionate, so she wants to help him. And then she's stuck going to her horrible ex-husband boss for help. Um, and I just think she does a really good job of threading that needle. Will he's not her ex-husband, but uh, he I, is. Ex-husband? You did. <clears throat> yeah, he's her ex-boyfriend. But I and former college professor, so creepy. But <laughs> that works I, for his character, though. I. Mm read it differently i don't read her feelings on jeff goldblum as being uh anything less than like very deep i i I don't think that it's a flirtation that she then goes back because of compassion i i read it as love (laughs) romeo and juliet type of love where it's like it's a powerful connection the power of love i like but i think it reads very like monster movie to me like king kong or twilight or whatever where they just have that really intense Almost like fairy tale, you know, capital R, capital L, romance love. 
Well, and, you know, add that also, along with everything else, adds to the tragedy of the situation. Like, they were very close to something that would have been very, very special, and only because of a, uh, because of one, a slight misunderstanding. For want of one teleportation accident, yes. go I. Well, we're handing out credit. I think John gets as her ex creepy ex-boyfriend, Stathis Borans, which is such a hard name to remember. Sounds like a Game of Thrones theme. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta say, flag on the play. I think Paul's only back in this dude because no. they got the same last name. Well, I think <laughs> First of all, his doesn't have an O. His doesn't have a silent O like mine. But I, just despite, I think he does give a good performance. What I like it more about that character than what the actor does with it is that you don't often see an arc in which someone so successfully plays a creep and a jerk and a guy who from the beginning you could read as, oh, this is going to be the guy that causes the trouble, essentially gets to be the hero in the end. I mean, he's not the hero, but he is a hero. I mean, he was basically kind of an abusive stalker. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I actually, yeah, I didn't really like the fact that he kind of came back to be, to kind of be the, I mean, he, he saved the day. I mean, she would have been killed or transformed if not for him showing up he does suffer you know i mean yeah. like in that scene i didn't fully remember what happened from when i last saw it so i was like oh oh he's probably gonna die where the fly is uh, uh vomiting and taking off his hand and foot yeah it's disgusting and disturbing but it's also one of those like oh yeah jerk there you go <laughs> there you go pal right all right well, moving ahead into The Fly 2. It was right written away. by Mick Garris. Uh, well, he huh. was one of four, four writers. It went through a, a series of, uh, of revisions. Uh, Mick Garris, who wrote Critters 2, Pocus Pocus, and the story for Batteries Not Included, among several other things. Other writers on this were Jim Wheat and his brother Ken Wheat, who wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and also Pitch Black. Oh. Um, some good credits there. And then uh, the final writer credited with punching this thing up was Frank Darabont, um, most famous for his Stephen King work, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, The Mist. Travis, uh, you mentioned the other day you were a fan of this. He also wrote The Blob remake. Hey! Um, and finally, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. So you had some uh, you had some heavy hitters on this script. That being said, I'm not sure what happened. Uh, they um, made the script, Paul. They had this great script, and then they made it into a movie, and we all <laughs> enjoyed it. Well, I know you've listened to the podcast. I'm not sure how many of Travis's opinions have been <laughs> against the grain, but it's not uncommon. Um, and right. also, I don't know what Lauren's opinion is here, so I don't want to speak for her too early. On the fly, too, I I liked it more than I was expecting. I was surprised um, by how well Eric Stoltz did. Whoa. For some reason. I, I don't know. I don't wow. know why I say that. Uh, I, I thought he did really well in the role. Um, it wasn't my favorite, but it was it was still a, a fine fine sequel, I thought. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm definitely going to agree with you on the Eric Stoltz of it all. I thought he did uh, well. What I found intriguing about his performance and his character was more the he's five years old of it all than the fly stuff. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think he really brought anything to the fly. 
That's a great point, Paul. This movie is interesting because it, it has some other sci-fi concepts going. It doesn't rest on the fly like it's the only thing it's got going on. Mm-hmm. Good point. It does do a lot of other interesting things. Mm, that's what I said, huh? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think it is. It's usually it's con- I mean, kind of popularly considered an inferior movie, right? I, I that, that was just kind of my impression of it. Twenty twenty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. In comparison oh, but, to The Flies, 92. Yeah, but where, who are these yeah. people on Rotten Tomatoes who rated it? Rotten Tomatoes can fucking rundle off. I saw it at a slumber party when I was like in fourth grade or something, which was, and then we played Battletoads all night. Oh, that sounds like the so, best way to see that movie. But yeah, I do have positive associations with it, really, personally. I mean, hmm. all all of my jackassery aside, I do think it is a really good movie. I think maybe... Like, of course, it's maybe not going to be as good as the first one, but the first one was made by, you know, a pretty big time filmmaker who's got quite a collection under his belt with an all star cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't mean it's not good to say it's not as good as The Fly. You know, I'm not going to be too mean to it as I have to others. I would say, unlike Lauren, I liked it less than I anticipated. I was pretty excited, to be honest. And especially when it started, I was like, oh, you're playing with all these interesting concepts. And I will say probably about up through when he goes in and pets the mutated dog, Mm. which was a wonderfully sad scene, I was pretty on board. And then I was just bored. And I didn't mean to lead into that pun so seamlessly, but hey, here we are. Yeah, I don't know. I just uh, kind of felt like I was waiting for something to be interesting again until uh, the violence sequence, which was cool. Some cool violence. Yeah. I mean, like what took away from that part of it is I didn't like the way the fly looked. And Why? for um, it looked more like a dark crystal character, sure, than a fly. <laughs> That's yeah, I don't know. I mean, I also coming so soon off of The Fly in which it's hard for me to think of other movies where the effects are so effective. And this one, I felt like they didn't build on the reveal of the effects in this movie like they did the first one. Really, I thought the best stuff was the gore. Yeah. Um, that guy's um, face melting off, but he's still yes. alive. Oof. That's the best moment in the whole movie. In my <laughs> The first movie, it was like a, it was trying to be something, and the second movie was kind of just trying to be a sci-fi movie. You know, it, like I think I feel like what you might be driving at is the first movie feels like it could, on another level, it could be about our fear of like cancer. You know, your body can just turn against you, and there's nothing you can do as you just deteriorate. It could be seen as I don't know a parable for the warnings of going home with strange men. Any number of things. Whereas The Fly 2 does feel a little bit more like, like you said, like a science fiction movie uh, trying as hard as can to, to, tur- yeah, to just mm-hmm. jump into a third act where an elevator smashes a guy's head. Another thing that I, you know, I was, I was going to say bothered me. Well, it did bother me. Once he becomes The Fly, he's still himself. He can't speak right. anymore, but he is the one making all the decisions. He decides to be kind and pet the dog. There is no threat of him becoming an actual monster. He just becomes a fly, but he's still Martin Brundle, the fly. Well, I would argue. I would, argue well, I would first point out that he was born fly monster, so he might. It it's, it sells to me that he would retain 
whatever of his consciousness. I would also argue that just personally for me, turning into that fly monster is enough of a threat uh, to drive the horror home. It's just there's not much threat. It's almost like a different uh, genre. It's certainly a different kind of story. It's yeah. not a tragedy, really. I was surprised uh, that it has such a happy ending. Well, and my okay, my issue with that happy ending is that I feel like the science, while you can poke holes in it in the first one, it's pretty consistent. And in this one, it ultimately works out that because he gets in the machine after, okay, he's transformed from a human being into a sort of like cocooned, deteriorating creature that kind of looks like the first fly. Then he breaks out of it is a full, completely different looking weird fly creature. And then that fly creature gets into a machine with a human being. And when they come out, the other human being has turned into a mutated pile of horror. (laughs) And he is perfectly intact. Eric Stoltz wrapped up in goo. I, I will agree with you that that science, I'll, I'll cop to that that doesn't quite mathematically add up for me either. I'll give it one more because it gives you that really satisfying ending. I do like with the, the, with the monster monster mash in the in the tube and the. And uh, one thing that just popped into my head, a line that I forgot was even from this movie that like re- recurs to me every now and then is uh, I, I just remember she says. You're getting worse. And he says, I'm getting better. Yeah, he's laying on the line. couch, forming with cobwebs all over him. That's, Same. That's, <laughs> that's one of the parts I thought he did best at. I thought he just, he really nailed that part. Well, and here's, okay, here is a problem I have with that. Not to say, his performance, I agree. He does a great job in that scene. But in that scene, I think it's implied that the fly is taking over and it's making him... It's messing with his mind. Yet, Mm -hmm. when he fully transitions into the fly creature, he is, like I said, essentially able to walk around pretty in control. I would also like to remind the the court that he he melts people's faces in that state. He's he's murdering people and throwing people. But they're evil people. First of all, I think a problem is it's got too many characters, whereas the first one keeps it pretty tight. But mm-hmm. all all of the characters, except for the main two and the dog, are evil. It would have made, I think, a big difference in the movie if not every single scientist was on team evil. I guess there was that one nice scientist that the security guard accidentally kills. But otherwise, every single scientist is nasty and mean to Martin for no reason. And it's just... Oh, yeah, those two hate him. It's just like from the beginning, there's um, there's no question, there's no complexity in terms of anyone's relationships. It's like literally just like, well, these are the bad guys. Uh, I'll allow it. (laughs) <laughs> the effect that is not nearly as effects, there's not as much of a build in the effects and it's not an effects heavy movie is kind of interesting to me because the director of this movie is Chris Wallace, who did the creature effects for the fly. He was the head of the creature effects team. And apparently he did the fly in lieu of doing Gremlins 2 and was the special effect head of special effects department on Gremlins as, and Return of the Jedi. So this is an effects guy. That was one thing that surprised me about the Fly 2 being less in the way of effects than I anticipated. I will say the Fly, the first Fly gets a lot uh, more um, flashy monster makeup effects, whereas the Fly 2 has a lot of 
complicated uh, that those you know that third act violence mm-hmm. took uh, quite a, quite a bit of doing. Before we move off of the fly two, I just have some actors' notes. Gina Davis refused to appear in the movie because her character is killed in the first scene. Of course. Martin Brundle was written specifically for Eric Stoltz, uh, but he refused because he didn't like the script. Then it was offered to Keanu Reeves, who turned it down. Then Vincent D'Onofrio was cast, but his screen test played poorly. He was sort of like Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future out. Gotcha. Of the movie, and then uh, they they did a re they did a punch up of the script and brought Eric Stoltz back in. Well, it worked. It paid off. Yeah, he did well. He was good in all things. <laughs> yeah, except for back yeah, to the he future, was, apparently. He was good as recently as last year. Oh, her smell. Her smell. Right. Mm. With uh, Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. Did you see her smell? Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, good, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you hear that I think actually, you know what? My I, I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she did not seem to enjoy it. And I don't. We you never finished it. But, <laughs> but oh, I did watch like the first hour and fifteen minutes of it. Join us next week on um, the Her Smell Show, where uh, some people who have seen it and some people who haven't continue to sort of talk about her smell. I'm, I'm in the middle. Well, that makes you the perfect guest. Ooh. Okay, well, before we get into the pitches, a couple of other sequels to reference that exist or could have existed. First of all, a proposed sequel to The Fly, which was sanctioned by Cronenberg, would have been about Seth Brundle somehow being kept alive inside of the telepods, like inside of the computer program. Mm. And it would would have been about Bartok Sciences keeping him a captive slave working for them. He communicates with Veronica through a computer, and the two of them find a way to exact brutally violent revenge on the Bartok folk and uh, bring Seth back into his original body. That's interesting. And then uh, apparently another sequel that was proposed before The Fly 2 happened uh, that went into pre-production but never took off was to be directed by Gina Davis's then-husband, Rennie Harlan, and it was called Flies. And it was about Veronica giving birth to Seth's twin boys. Oh. Ah. Yeah. So I have a question I, c- I can't remember the answer to. At the end of The Fly 2, is the Bartok Cor- Corporation still a thing? Yes. I guess so, because uh, he's the Bar- Bartok himself is, is in the cage or whatever you would call it that the oh, dog okay. is in. It looks like a silo. Almost. Yeah. They're just keeping their mistakes alive. That's what they're about at the end. Aren't we all? (laughs) Okay, so then the final other sequel was a comic book sequel to The Fly 2 called The Fly Outbreak, which was published in 2015, and it follows Martin Brundle as he attempts to cure Bartok of his mutant condition. Oh. Which... Nerd. Yeah, I don't know why uh, anyone would write that. Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) So then rolling toward the pitches with our questions, numero uno, should this movie, The Fly, have a sequel? Hell yeah. Sure, yeah. I'm happy with the the ending there. And mm-hmm. though, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll stick with that. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 going to I'm going to come in as a no as well, only because I mean, I understand that there are seeds planted. There's the possibility of a brundle fly child. 
There is also the evil... Well, I guess you don't know that they're evil. There's the corporation out there that they've mentioned. I can assume. Um, Greedy uh, scientists. I would yeah, say... I mean, like, it's just such a perfectly intact tragedy, you know? And it's so much about Seth Brundle that I don't know what yeah. they're satisfying. The implications of teleporter technology being feasible, even if it's non-organic matter, if you can only transport inorganic matter. There's so many stories you could tell with just that, without even getting into, like, fly stuff or genetic stuff or monster stuff, that there's a, I, a glut of sequels you could pitch. I could agree. I agree with that. But I I would see it more almost like an anthology rather than a sequel, like Ooh. maybe within the same world. Like you said, there are a lot of interesting elements, a lot of directions you can go, but I feel like the fly... This uh, story, you know, it it died with Seth, you know, like he was the heart of it. So I'd say you could move on, talk about Bartok, talk about the technology, and uh, maybe and, even you know, track down Gina Davis and her baby. Yeah, and, well, so if you do that, I would say it's a sequel. But if you leave that alone, you call it a sidequel, as sidequel. a so soldier is to the Blade Runner universe. Parallelical. Huh. Oh, yes. That was the other term. <laughs> Yes, we coined that on our uh, S. Darko episode. Well, uh, real quick before we transition into pitches, gotta ask, sequel or prequel, if you're gonna do it, what's the sweet spot? Oh, it's gotta uh, be sequel. Yeah, it's gotta be sequel. Yeah. See how you can do a prequel. Is that just like Jeff Goldblum writing math down? <laughs> or Gina Davis sleeping with her professor? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's upset about it because he's a jerk. Her getting out of an abusive relationship, but still working for slash with him. Weird. I mean, I would watch that movie. That sounds complicated. It's not like a science fiction movie, but no. there's some stuff to talk about there. Yeah, but uh, that could be a short. Okay, so Will, why don't we just start with you? Okay. So we open again with the, the delivery room scene, a version of it. And it's kind of, a, it's a very suspenseful, uh, you know, very tense scene. And there's, you know, ominous music. You know, something wrong is happening. She's kind of looking around and suddenly notices that her wrists are bound uh, to the bed. And she starts to, you know, get even more frantic. And, and you know, why am I tied up? You know, she doesn't even know why she's here, what's going on. And the doctor emerges and it is Seth. It's Gold, Jeff Goldblum. Return, and... And suddenly you also notice behind him is one of the teleport pods. And he, but he's just, you know, in his kind of creepy semi Seth voice, you know, uh, you know, she's coming, you know, then we kind of cut to Seth's POV where he's looking at the woman and we see that it's not Gina Davis. It's Tawny, the woman from the bar that Seth picked oh. up uh, after the arm wrestling. She recognizes him in that moment. And, you know, you, what are you doing to me? You know, it's just, he kind of ignores her, goes back to work you know, uh, while she's screaming in pain. And finally, uh, the birth happens. The baby emerges, but we can't see it. Uh, she's sobbing and he's just kind of ignoring her, you know, muttering that it, she's so beautiful, so beautiful. And then whips around, the pod pops open. The, the fog starts rolling out. He turns, walks to the pod. She's screaming, struggling, kneels down, puts the baby in the pod um, and steps back. And then we see the baby for the first time, cut to the baby, and it in a flash, it's just a normal baby sitting there, and in a flash it disappears, you know, it's teleported. Uh, she she wakes up, Tawny wakes up in bed, it was a nightmare. Uh, she runs to the bathroom to throw up, sitting on the floor next to the toilet, she has a moment of realization, and says shit. 
Cut to Tawny at the drugstore uh, buying a pregnancy test. Okay, now Seth's warehouse later on. Um, there's police tape, you know, but it seems vacant. Uh, she kind of, you know, goes under the police tape. She goes in. She's kind of curious what's going on. Obviously, something happened, but she has some business to, you know, take up with Seth. So she's banging on the door, calling out to him. Nobody answers. She opens the door, peeks inside. It's a, it's a mess, of course. Goes in, starts looking around in, you know, kind of a classic 80s uh, move. A guy comes out, like a guy kind of in a hazmat suit, but with his hood kind of off comes walking out like eating like a ham sandwich he's like what What are you doing here you know you're not supposed to be here they tell her to leave and she's kind of resistant to leave assuming that seth is still there um she kind of calls out and they're kind of pushing her toward the door and she says something about well tell him you know that i you know we have to do something about this baby and as she like gets to the door she's met by a guy in a suit who introduces himself as dr weber and uh, he tells her that he'll take her to see Seth. So then we cut to Gina Davis. Well, you know, she's a reporter, so she wants to get this story out, you know, it, and has, of course, the personal connection. But she's being blocked by someone. And there appears to be some kind of a threat. And then the phone goes dead. She slams it down. She's upset. The Her, her ex-boyfriend, ex-boss guy uh comes in he's in a wheelchair clearly this is a thing that's been going on for a while she you know says i don't want to hear it and he has kind of a you know like she's you just got to let it go you know you know we both lost uh something here you know it's we've got to move on and he and he's kind of sets up you know it's it's the bar talk company they're you know they're too big they control the you know the media they have people in the government they you know the official story is that it was like a murder suicide attempt and obviously she is you know, traumatized by it. And he just wants her to take some more time, you know, work through it. You know, he's very insensitive about it. You know, either go home and, and get over it or, you know, you might as well leave. And she's like, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, you know, he's calling somebody, you know, she's got proof, you know, she's got videotape, you know, you don't hear the other side. Um, but again, it kind of seems to end with, uh, basically it's, it's Dr. Weber again, you know, he's the evil mastermind on the other side of the phone. Um, and he makes kind of a threat about, you know, like, well, she can't be allowed to, you know, have this information or, you know, we have to do something about her. Uh, she kind of has like a PS PTSD panic attack kind of episode. She hasn't really been out much since the events, you know, and it's been a little while. Yeah. Um, and this is, yeah, this may be the first time she's been out in public, like, you know, since. And, you know, I thought you could go, I don't know, I had, you know, there's like a, a dangling uh, fly paper there, you know, with a buzzing fly on it. And there's like a waiter that kind of looks like Jeff Goldblum or, or whatever, you know. Uh, so she's triggered and she has to take off early. Um, she gets home and the door to her apartment is ajar. The place is ransacked, you know, kind of clicks. And she immediately goes and sees that all the tapes have been stolen hmm. uh, and her papers are everywhere. And she, you know, kind of could be kind of a jump scare where the other guy, uh, he's there, uh, the, in the wheelchair, you know, and he's like barely hanging on to life. He's been beaten badly, you know, and he's just moaning and kind of semi-conscious or unconscious. Uh, he's conscious enough to like come into the room and then he just sort of collapses and she calls the, you know, calls the police, um, you know, cut to the hospital. He's, you know, got tubes and, you know, assisted breathing and, uh, intensive care. Um, oh, oh, also while she was at the hospital, um, she starts kind of holding her stomach. She's uh, clearly, you know, starting to have some pain. Uh, the next morning, Tawny, the lady from the bar, 
um, she is in the Bartok facility. She's being taken care of. She's, you know, all the nurses tend her every need. Uh, it's pretty luxurious, I guess, but we find out she's unhappy. She's not allowed to leave. Uh, Dr. Weber comes in, sweet talks her, but with a very, uh, <laughs> kind of abusive edge. You know, he's just, He's not just a uh, an evil mastermind. He's actual like he's not above getting his hands dirty. So and that's why she can't leave. But she's content enough to stay because they're taking care of her. Uh, so okay, same day we see Gina Davis uh, going back to the magazine office. She knows, you know, has hit a brick wall. She she starts to leave, doubles over in pain. They call call an ambulance. She's taken to the hospital. Um, you know, being wheeled down the hall. Uh, she tells them she's pregnant for some reason she has decided to keep it. You know, that's where that decision becomes clear that she is planning to keep it. Mm -hmm. They take her to kind of a secluded part of the hospital. This is where it starts getting strange, but she doesn't seem to notice she's in so much pain and this sort of thing. The, The nurses, the people that are wheeling her in leave and you know, the doctor will be right with you. She's kind of concerned, but can't really do anything about it. And a few minutes later, Dr. Weber comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they do kind of an exam, uh, maybe kind of, maybe an ultrasound, you know, some kind of, you know, grainy, it's hard to tell what exactly he's seeing, but he's very fascinated by it. And it's actually appears to be very healthy and growing very quickly. Kind of, there's like a little montage of, of her admittance and, uh, some testing. Oh, and also you, you kind of recognize subtly that this appears to be the same facility that Tawny is in. And, uh, she actually, and some time passes, you know, uh, she actually catches a glimpse of Tawny in the hallway one day, you know, just kind of going from room to room. Maybe she sees her in a room or so she, you know, it, you know, she ends up being locked in. They won't let her out. Um, she devises a way to escape. She's escaping, but as she's leaving, you know, she sees like mysterious trucks coming in or something. And, you know, and the reporter in her will not let her, you know, ignore it. So she has to go like do a little bit of investigation. Um, she discovers like a, a containment facility with all these, a bunch of the teleportation pods and there, and, but it's not just the teleportation pods that existed in the lab before it's variations on them, smaller ones, bigger ones. Uh, and, and there are like weird things like mute, uh, you know, chimera, you know, mutated animals in cages and, and, you know, uh, she gets captured again. Um, oh. somehow they, they try to get Tawny. Um, and I wanted there to be like a conflict where she's trying to get Tawny out of there, you know, save her. And, uh, but Tawny wants to stay because they are treating her pretty well. And, you know, they're going to buy the baby. She didn't, she was, didn't want it anyway. And, uh, and, and she, you know, of course probably gets killed because they don't care about her and just wanted the baby. And I don't know how they would end up bringing it down in the end, or if they would, like by the end of the movie, the baby still isn't born. Oh, wow. Um, it's like, it goes on to eventually, you know, the third or fourth movie is Planet of the Flies. Kind oh. Of thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I got wow. it. Okay, I didn't see so, that. Yeah. Wow. It really gets rolling there later later on. I didn't get to the, like, really, the really fun stuff. Well, what's it? Do you have a title? I, no, Planet. not really. Planet of the Flies, yeah. it, Or it could be, like, journey to the planet of the flies or something because it's not the planet of the flies yet but it's yes by the end of the movie it's clear there's going to be like rise of the planet you know, of the flies dawn of the planet of the flies is you know rise of the flies it's lord of the fly oh, singular yeah. well does dr weber live 
beyond the movie? Oh, no, yeah, I think so. Because like, so he is just an agent for Bartok. Maybe they do sort of take down Bartok, but he kind of jettisons himself with some of the technology. You know, because he's the uh, Moriarty. What's the uh, James Bond version of that? Um, Blofeld. Blofeld. Yeah. First, it's hard for me to not picture Doctor Weber as Doctor Brenner from Stranger Things, just because he's yes. <laughs> such a similar role to play. But I do have a suggestion for the casting on Doctor Weber, which would be Scott Glenn, who plays Jack Crawford in Sounds oh. of the Lambs. Oh. I just looked him up. I like it. I like it. Right on. Bringing Tommy back. Yeah, that was cool. That's super That's a cool. Thread to pull. Yeah. Yeah, that was my, like, watching the movie, like, I instantly, I was like, oh, well, she just disappears. Where did she go? Let's, I want to see what, yeah, that was, yeah. That was cool. That opening was awesome. That was really, really cool. Thank you. Yeah. That's where I put most of my energy. (laughs) (laughs) As you may have been able to tell. Like, more of a thriller vibe. There's, you know, the mysterious organization that is, like, pulling strings that you don't even realize, and you can't trust anyone, and and your sanity is is even... uh, questionable yeah like naked so i really wanted to get into that oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah there you go all right well awesome i'm gonna uh i'm gonna pull a man from uncle episode and break these pitches up with some fun facts okay Uh, cool uh, so my first fun fact is that vincent price apparently revealed in an interview that when the remake was released jeff goldblum wrote him a letter saying i hope you like it as much as i liked yours Price responded after seeing the movie with the voice. Okay. Goldblum or Price? I guess I'll try both. Okay, so Goldblum said, (laughs) uh, I hope you like it as as much as I like yours. Uh, And then Price's reply was, yeah, not great. But Price's reply was, oh boy, he's tough. Finish it, flavish him. Hold on. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Uh, That is not what he said. Wonderful, right up to a certain point. No, I'm terrible at this. I'm not going to do no, that. That was good. I, I no, no, Paul's right. That was, that yeah. Was anyways, good. his reply was wonderful, right up to a certain point. It went a little too far. Hmm. So mm-hmm. he's, okay. he's from a different time. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Anyone want to go next? Um, I'll go next. All right. Dive right in. Corny's got it. I think the world should know about it now. And I think I should be the one to tell. On the brink of the new millennium, the Bartok Corporation is preparing to release their successfully revamped Brundle Pods for worldwide distribution. The dozens of test subjects who made the success of the Grundle Pods possible. I said Grundle Pods. Wow. Suffering from varying degrees of mutation, the subjects successfully mount a long planned escape. As they escape, they manage to retrieve a number of relevant files, including those of Seth and Martin Brundle. After securing refuge, the subjects read their files and learn about Martin Brundle's successful reversal of his mutation. They track down and confront Martin, who is disgusted by by uh, the Bartok Corporation's methods and agrees to help the subjects take it down. Martin suggests that they gather all of the subjects and go together to the Bartok Corporation to help handle security. And so they break into the facility. Security shows up and Martin scolds them for letting the subjects escape in the first place. 
he has been helping them develop the the pods this whole time. Hmm. Seems when you bond with a CEO, you know, you just you keep that ruthlessness. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, a number of the test subjects reveal that they have bombs strapped to them and detonate them, leveling the facility and all and everything in it. From a distance, we see the facility billowing smoke. Four test subjects look on somberly. A fly lands on the camera and flies away after a moment. And that's all I got. And it's called the Fly 2000. So this is, I mean, this is is the Fly 3, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It incorporates the The Fly fly 3, 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Oh, I, yeah, I just wanted to say I really like uh, you know him retaining some of the traits of the yeah, uh, CEO. Super cool. Like, yeah, like because that's something we haven't seen yet. You know, like I'd like to explore that. You know, like but yeah, that is that is an interesting play with the science. And I did like. I mean, I wanted to know what would happen had things gone forward with Gina Davis and Brundle Fly merging. Probably a monstrosity, but perhaps not at first. Much like Brundle Fly himself. See, yeah, and that would be fascinating. I'd yeah, I'd like yeah. to see that. I am um, surprised so far. No flies so far. I mean, well, this is like a good segue to my pitch. Then <laughs> take it away, Travis. Oh, okay, let me think about it. I'll come up with something. I'm going to describe for you the opening scene. We're going to start with a lot of like videotaped interviews from people from this movie, uh, anyone who was left alive still, any tertiary characters, um, really intensive, like, FBI-style interrogation, just little flashes and snippets, as we're also going to be intercutting with, like, whatever, CSI or federal investigators at the site of Seth Brundle's, you know, horrible accident. As they're sort of cleaning things up, they're putting things in bags, they're boxing it up, kind of like you know, um, um, the Ark of the Covenant in the uh, in the warehouse sort of vibe. They're trying to just get rid of all this and investigate what happened. They're covering things up. Uh, people are just taking flamethrowers to the building as it's being unpacked. We see the body of Seth Brundle fly being put into a body bag and then put into a medical waste box. And then we start seeing all of these trucks, a caravan of trucks leaving this site, driving way outside of the city. And everything's just being dumped in a medical waste plant. We're all just we're just getting rid of what we can, burying what we can't. Um, the box containing the Brundlefly's body tips over and breaks open. The bag body falls out, and we hear the buzzing of flies as they descend onto the body and start doing what flies do: decomposing it, eating it, stuff like that. As they eat, they're laying their little larval eggs. We get kind of like a sped up time lapse thing of the the body sort of overnight rotting or whatever it does. And then we see the maggots start coming up from the body, the maggot seeds, um, seeds, eggs <laughs> off of the body. Um, and they they turn into flies and they they fly up into the night sky um, in front of the moon. And we see our title card made of flies. And it says flies. Hmm. Um, yeah. We then oh, kind of. Yeah. Men in black style sort of follow these flies as they buzz back towards the city and they land on things. As the moon starts to set, we see uh, as we're vignetting around through the city to our characters. Sorry, I didn't even make up any characters for this. Mm. Uh, Kurt Russell's probably here. Uh, <laughs> but we notice these flies uh, as they continue to grow. They're growing to the size of house flies, then to the size of house cats, 
and they're just getting bigger and bigger. And over the course of about 12 hours, they grow into like mutant fly monsters, like little chuds. Something about that process turns them into these, you know, quickly growing monsters. So they're just tearing through the city throughout the night, fighting everything, um, killing people. Our characters are organizing and grouping, whatever. And we see the night of them just killing these monsters, just killing them left and right. We don't know how many there are. We don't know what's going on. So they're trying to investigate. They're trying to investigate what's going on. They're following the Seth Brundle trail as they find it. Military gets wind. They're kind of getting involved. We come to find out that each one of these monsters, when they die, if a fly lays their eggs on the body, those larvae, those maggots will turn into future generations of these fly beasts. So for every one that we kill, it potentially could spawn dozens, hundreds of these beasts. So now they know the next night they're going to have even more of these fly monsters. Then the military comes in. They surround the city because it's like patient zero time. They're like, no, whatever's going on in your city has to die in your city or it'll overwhelm the world. So they're getting ready for a countdown to just wipe the city off the map. Anyone who's trying to get out of the city has to fight the military as the military tries to keep them in. And then whichever way it goes, whether our heroes are victorious or not, the military is going to wipe the city off the map. So they blow the city up, smoosh everything over. Everyone's dead. It's an ending like I love. Uh, but then, of course, out of the smoke and the rubble, we're going to we're going to the camera's going to follow one single fly as it flies up and we get it in front of the moon. And is this a normal fly or is it one of the bad flies? Nice. We don't know. Yeah. Thanks, Very guys. Cool. Thank you. It's a, a alien to aliens genre jump as well, yeah. along with the title. You know, and if I were to actually sit down and write this script out, I might insert some like garbage guys into the <laughs> opening scene. And they're the ones like unloading the trucks. And it's like, hey, careful, you, the box cracked open. And it's like, it's all trash. What do you care? It's not the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. And I also liked your use of, of Chud throughout. There's also, yeah, Bud the Chud, the sequel. Like, that's a that's a famously really terrible movie, I guess. Great title. Yeah. Chud 2, Bud yeah. the Chud. Yeah. Well, my fun fact that I have to break up between this and the final pitch is that uh, the movie The Fly 2 was originally given an X rating by the MPAA, specifically because of the scene where the security guard's head is smashed by the elevator. Yeah. Um, and then the director, Chris Wallace, appealed the decision, and they said, okay, why are the ratings people even there? They seem to like the children make arbitrary things and they can be swayed. It's kind of a it's head. weird to me that the man living through his face being melted off was not mentioned. Right. But they yeah. were like, oh, you can't just squish a man's head. And then I guess the director went, come on. And they <laughs> like, said, right. get out of here, scamp. <laughs> Ruffled his hair. Yeah. And way. All right. Well, I'm going to breeze through my pitch as fast as I because can, and then, we'll, and then we'll figure this out. As the general said, there's nothing I'd ask you to do that I wouldn't do myself, boys. Mine is cold. The gecko versus the fly. Yay! What? <laughs> nice. All right. Whoa. Veronica has an abortion. Stathis <laughs> is outfitted with prosthetics. Fake hand, fake foot. Bonded by the overwhelming emotional experience of the first film, they fall back into a relationship. They disagree about what should be done with Ronnie's footage of Seth. Stathis wants to release it. Ronnie wants to destroy it because of her emotional connection to everything. That night, unable to sleep, 
She rushes out to Seth's lab. She pulls the fire alarm for the building and then proceeds to set the lab on fire. Pulling the fire alarm is just trying to get everyone out. Later, Ronnie winds up pregnant with Stathis's child. They get married. Six years later, we are brought into the world with a scientific program called The World of Tomorrow Today, in which it is explained that teleportation technology now exists and will soon be implemented around the world by Bartok Sciences to do things like send food and other aid to third world countries. You can become a, co- a part of this revolutionary breakthrough today by upgrading your mailbox to a Bart box. Veronica turns off the program with disgust. She and Stathis's marriage has clearly become loveless, and it's fairly apparent that Stathis is having an affair. But Veronica could not love their son, Seth, anymore. We watch her go outside and see that she is the only one on the block with a regular mailbox, but she has no mail and seems frustrated by it. Her neighbor does have a bark box, but complains that it's all come out printed backwards again, much like the plate in the original fly. You know, the person that they're with assures them, oh, it's new technology. They'll sort it out eventually. One morning, Veronica doesn't feel well and asks if Stathis can drive Seth to school. He seems put out, but ultimately agrees. That day, it is show and tell, and Seth is bringing his pet gecko to school. Stathis hurriedly drops him off, neither of them noticing that the gecko has escaped its carrying case and is loose in the car. At home, Veronica watches the news and sees that a new innovation in teleportation tech has recently been unveiled. A tunnel that can be walked or driven through that leads straight from, I said New York because that's where I thought they were, but apparently they're in Toronto, so let's just say Toronto, Mm. to the island of Oahu. If you wish to drive, You'll have to get your car outfitted with special Bartok tech as well, and the results will be seamless. They call it the Brundle Bridge, named as a tribute to the long-kept secret inventor of the original telepod. Upon seeing this, Veronica freaks out, starts going through Stathis's things, and finds evidence of dealings with Bartok sciences that he's had going on for years. She attempts to call him on his car phone, but he doesn't answer. She leaves him a message saying that she knows what he's done and that he'll never see her or their son again. Stathis, meanwhile, is in a hurry waiting to drive through the Brundle Bridge. He's actively getting texts from his mistress, who is evidently waiting for him on the other side in Oahu. When he reaches the final checkpoint that they're supposed to go to through beforehand, he avoids a more thorough search of his vehicle that he probably should have by showing the attendant the alluring picture that his side piece has just sent to him. You know, and the, the attendant's pervy and is like, oh yeah, get get going. Therefore, the gecko, who is hiding under the seat, is missed, and he drives through. Soon thereafter, he starts to change. The first thing that happens is he regrows his hand and foot, which he is very happy about. But then, he begins to grow a tail. He inadvertently kills his mistress by drooling an incredibly viscous saliva onto her during lovemaking, which tears away at her flesh. Then his tongue begins to grow, both in strength and length. His eyelids come off, causing him to have to lick his eyes to keep them wet with his long tongue. He sheds his skin, revealing far more coarse skin underneath. 
He attempts to call his associates at Bertok Sciences, but finds them overwhelmed and dismissive of his problem, even threatening if they ever he- threatening him if they ever hear from him again. Then he finally listens to Ronnie's message. We jump over to Veronica in a car, driving with Seth in tow. We don't know where they're going, but they're fleeing. You know, they're getting out of town. The inside of the car lights up, and they are suddenly transported by tech that Stathis apparently also had installed into this car, and they end up in Stathis's car in Oahu with Stathis. He holds them captive with no real plan, but he's clearly desperate and slipping into madness, and he continues to shed his skin, becoming more horrifying with each transformation. The teleportation has also had an effect on Seth and Veronica. In Seth, it activates a recessive gene that starts accelerating the process of turning him into a fly. Veronica, too, appears to be going through some painful changes in what appears to be an accelerated pregnancy growing inside of her. Eventually, the two hybrid creatures, the fly and the gecko, fight. With the gecko using his tail, his 12-foot-long tongue, and his sticky finger pads to his advantage. Still, the fly seems to have gained the upper hand until the gecko turns out the lights. This causes the fly to have trouble seeing, while the gecko uses his nocturnal senses to go on the hunt. Just before Stathis destroys Seth, Veronica is able to get the lights back on, overwhelming the gecko's senses long enough to kill him. Desperate to do anything she can to save her son, Veronica puts him in the car and remembers the original Seth Brundle's last-ditch plan to combine their genes by going through the pods together. So Veronica drives the two of them through the Brundle Bridge. Just before she gets to the entrance to the bridge, a fly creature bursts forth from her stomach. They come out the other side, a horrific hybrid creature that loses control of the car, or does it, and drives off the bridge into the ocean. The movie ends with news coverage of this accident and recounts it as one of several terrifying side effects of the teleportation technology around the world, all of which we see glimpses of in the news report. The report goes on to say that all the traces of the tech have been recalled, all the hybrids have been ordered to be destroyed, and Bartok Sciences is facing enormous legal actions after video footage of the original Seth Brundle's experiment, apparently kept secret, have surfaced. And that's it. That's the movie. But uh, I did want to also add on that Jeff Goldblum appears in dreams that Veronica has throughout the film, some sweet, some horrifying. And in the background of most scenes, we see examples of the teleportation tech being used throughout the world. And as the movie progresses, we see multiple hints of other madness going on as well. I like Mm. that. That's really, really cool. Why not Brundle Tunnel? So that it wasn't out of nowhere when the car flies off the... Sure, sure. Yeah. And alliteration. Yeah, alliteration too. Alliteration. Both, uh, Both Travis and I wanted to sort of run with the idea of like sort of like a menagerie of different animals like both of us thought like spider yeah like spider person like i very much like the idea that as he sheds his skin there's a newer monster underneath that's worse yeah that's great it took me a while to land on gecko i was originally going with chameleon but then i found out that they don't regrow their appendages and i was like that's gotta happen so yeah that's really 
Yep, yep. I thought the the viscous saliva killing his mistress during sex is a very Cronenbergian thing. Yeah, the eyelids falling off I thought would be a that crazy thing yeah. to see. I was just trying to picture what kind of um, gecko effects we would be getting. Yeah, they'd be practical for sure. I had envisioned, you know. Okay, so I guess let's roll into the voting. I haven't thought of a, a different way for us to decide this one. Any clear favorites jumping out to anybody? Um, mine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I liked them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I I'll go with yours. I I really like the gecko. I just think it's a a clever thing. I like the. Uh, well, it's like what should have happened. It's it's finding a way to pit like the the nemesises against each other. Nemesis? Yeah. Nemesis. Yeah, I I I will vote for um Paul's and for mine. Thanks. I'll vote for all of them. I liked I liked things in all of them. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to give I'm going to give a four oh four round vote. Lauren? Me too. I liked oh, them all. All right. Well, fuck me. Thank um, you. Okay. Well, Let's just um, breeze past uh, counting the votes, and um, you know, I'll the the viewer, the listeners will know who won. I think it's time for champagne. Does anyone have any unsung heroes? Hit it, Paul Junior. Unsung heroes. Well- and Will, to explain what's going on on Sung Heroes, is any small roles or even like extras in the movies that stood out to you as really adding to the overall experience? Okay. Uh, well, uh, I mean, the, the scene probably that I remember most vividly um, from, you know, watching it when I was young was the arm wrestling scene. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> the guy who got his arm broken, I'd say, who I, I looked up the trivia and he was like a heavyweight champion boxer, I guess. Yeah, uh, he was like very he was famous in Canada, right? Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, my I don't have any for the first fly because I feel like everybody's pretty prominent in that one. But in the fly two, uh, again, referencing what I would say was my favorite scene where the guy who gets uh, his head vomited on and his head melts. That's yeah, that security guard, not only because of that, but he's alone. It's he's the guy who closes the door when the body's thrown at the door. So there's so much cool about that sequence, but you haven't really seen it before. And he gets this awesome line where it's like, he knows he has to go after the creature and he goes, great, fucking great. (laughs) 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 Which is, uh, very apt. Can, can I vote for the cactus he sends through the, Oh yeah. The second one. I just, I like that cactus. Yeah. That was a cool visual. The uh, Cronenberg cactus. Yeah. Uh, um, and then I did really, I mean, she is definitely like a, a major character in the movie, so I wouldn't call her an unsung hero, but I did want to bring up that the, uh, female scientist, Dr. Janeway, the first one that he kills uh, in the fly too, she, I want to give her the award for most hateable face. Wow. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not going to say she's an ugly person. And I know that her character was mean, so that's probably leading into it. But from the moment I saw her on screen, I was like, oh, oh, I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. And, you know, that never went away. Um, Yeah, she was super mean. She was super mean. Yeah. I get what you mean. Well, uh, before we get into plugs and wrapping up, I did want to... I've been waiting to do this episode because I know Will listens to the podcast. Uh, I wanted to do a quick 
uh, a, a kind of things left on the table. Let's get these things off the table. In the Men in Black episode, I told a story about how when Men in Black 2 came out, I sort of dared all my friends who made fun of the first Men in Black to go see it with me because it would prove that it was good. Uh, Ouch. And I went myself, even after seeing it the first time and not liking it, I went back four or five more times to try to make myself like it. Sure. Um, so the part of that story that I remembered after the fact and left out, which I think adds a little bit of comedy to the situation, one of those five times that I went back, I went with my first ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend. And <laughs> the feelings there were still very raw, um, but I was trying to be a nice guy at the time. And I was trying to prove that we could be friends. Mm. So we went and they hated it and I was still trying to like it and they made fun of how bad it was after the fact. And I was like, oh, yeah, I actually already saw it. And I remember specifically she said to me, oh, so it's like you got kicked in the crotch and then you asked someone to do it again. And, you know, I was so wrapped up in so many complex emotions, both toward the film and toward them at the time that I remember my response being no. That's not what it's like. And that was it. <laughs> um, oh, bud. Yeah. Well so, there. so that, yeah, for sure. But I further <laughs> hatred wrapped around men in black too, <laughs> uh, associated yeah. with that situation. So I just wanted to share that with everyone. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. All right. Well, anybody have anything they wish to plug? Will guests goes first. Um, well, you know, best coffee in town. Uh, next time you guys are at the lake or any of you listeners, Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, uh, look us up. And also, I ha I don't know, we have got a group of people. We've been recording some podcasts that I haven't had time to edit. That is, uh, we've got It's a show called Blast Burton Radar Rocket Ranger from the 26th century. Eventually, we may release a podcast of serialized episodes, but I can't you can't find it right now. So I don't know if that counts as a plug. It's coming maybe soon. Uh, we, well, so we've been doing these live performances, uh, for over a year, or we had, you know, until March. Right. Uh, we, Why I think would happen done, in March? Like, <laughs> <laughs> also, sp speaking of that, I assume that Great Stone Coffee is not near the uh, resort in Lake of the Ozarks where the very famous COVID pool party happened they we are actually they're like our neighbors oh. i mean like they're within maybe like a mile or two of us ah well i'm sure it's it doesn't make the stone coffee it's it great right right well yeah we're doing our thing we yeah. you know we have limited seating we we're doing our you know we're wearing masks we're you know doing all the the stuff uh but actually the result it seemed to have had is it showed pe it, like people took it as well they don't care let's go there oh uh, so we have had a record summer, like over like the whole lake area, like our normal kind of influx of people is like seven million uh, for the season or something. And or maybe it was even six. And this year we've had something like nine wow. um, already. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's we've actually had a significant growth uh, this year, uh, significant growth being uh the third sequel in my my series of Fly Movie. <laughs> boy, oh boy, it is Missouri's a it's different. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is different. Yes. Well, even a, a friend of mine called me from Kansas City and I told him that and he was shocked. You know, it's not it's not just Missouri. It's, yeah. It seems to be the lake. We live in a weird bubble here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's scary. But I mean, at least you're pra- you're being safe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't have brought it up, but um... <laughs> OK, sorry. So Travis Lauren pluggies. Um, I. I got uh, my Etsy shop. I make custom Funko Pops. I take requests. Uh, Pop that Funko. And I have a Instagram account with the same name. Uh, periods in between the words. Pop period that period Funko. Uh, just Theater of Tomorrow and the hotel wherever podcasts are sold. Yeah, Will, have you checked either of those out yet since listening to this? Uh... I haven't. Okay. I think- I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. Ah, well, I think, I mean, I, it, I, first of all, I was asking because I wondered if, if plugs work, but, uh, also, uh, I think you dig them there. It's a science fiction anthology show and a horror anthology show. So they're, they're, they're pretty great. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Well, and, and I have, I really, I truly have intended to, but I just haven't. Yeah. You'll love it. All right. I have just now, I just now subscribed, so I will Thank no longer you. be. Hey, oh, live clowns yeah. work even better. It turns out. <laughs> On the next follow-up showdown. The movie we're talking about is 2015's new horror classic, It Follows. And our guest today is my neighbor, Jason Pugh. I think it's a safe assumption that every empty seat on an airplane is occupied by an It Follows monster. That is and someone tried to say, it's like, whoa, there's something on the sat on someone's lap. <laughs>